If you have a Bible, let's go to Revelation chapter 2 and 3. As I said earlier, we're preaching through the book of Revelation and uh, in, in a little bit sort of different way. Uh, Stephen, earlier he said, um, I kind of feel like you want to go deeper in this, but, but you're not. And well, that, that's what you're for. You, that's what you got to do on your own time. All right. So uh, we're kind of taking a panoramic view. We have been the last couple of weeks. And again, we will today of these seven churches in Revelation chapter two and three. Last week, we heard what it is that Jesus applauds in those churches. Today, we want to hear what it is that Jesus admonishes in those churches. Churches. Now, everybody knows what applause is, right? We say when Jesus applauded those churches, it was, yes, way to go. That's fantastic. Really proud of you. The word admonish is a word that you might be less familiar with. It's not a word that we use too often, although it is a fantastic word. The word admonish really has the idea of to correct or to rebuke or to reprimand. It sort of has the idea of encouraging with an edge or instructing with a bite. I told you last week the story of that time, I say that time, that my football coach applauded something that I did. Those moments didn't happen a whole lot. I got probably more admonishment from my coach than I did applause. Admonishment sounded more like this, come on, Frederick, let's go, man. What are you thinking? Get your head in the game. Let's go. And you know what? That was okay with me because I knew as long as my coach was admonishing me, he cared about me. I knew that he was aware that I was capable of better. And that's why he would admonish me. That's why he would correct me, because he knew that I was not playing up to my full potential. And so, strangely, it was, it was good for me to hear him admonish me, because he knew that there was more potential inside of me. And he cared enough about me. He cared enough about me to call me out. And that means something. You know, you don't admonish somebody that can't do any better than what they're doing, right? Like through the years, I've had opportunity to um, coach some of my children's sports teams. Scavenger hunt question number one. If you're coaching a six-year-old basketball league, and you got a six-year-old whose crossover is a little sloppy, and he can't hit a three-point shot, you don't admonish that six-year-old, Right? If you've got a six-year-old that's just out there with his shorts pulled up, you celebrate that, right? You take the win. That's fantastic. But if you're coaching a high school team and you've got a 16- or 17-year-old young man and he's capable of having a wonderful crossover and being very consistent from the three-point line, but he's not putting in the work, he's not showing up at practice, he's half-heartedly going through the drills, that guy's capable of more. So you're going to admonish that person. This is what Jesus is doing for his church in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. He cares enough about them to admonish them because he knows that by his grace, they can be better than they are. They're capable of living lives that bring him more glory and honor and praise than they're currently living. So let's listen in. What is it that Jesus is admonishing in these churches. There's seven of these churches, but by the way, he only admonishes five of them. So we're going to look at that. First is this one. Jesus admonishes Ephesus, the church at Ephesus. Why? Because their hearts had drifted away. Their hearts had drifted away from Jesus. We have two daughters, two sons and two daughters, and our two daughters are both graduating this year. Our oldest daughter is graduating high school 
and moving away to college. Oh, man. Can we just not do 2020 anymore? <laughs> I'm not even looking forward to that. No, I'm, I'm, I'm excited for her, but, you know, the dad's here. You know what I'm talking about. And then our baby girl, she's graduating kindergarten. And so last week, Kalia, uh, our kindergartner, uh, recent kindergarten alum, uh, they had a special thing at her school where they got to drive through and see their teachers and pick up some things from the end of the year and some little prizes and stuff. And so one of the things that Kalia got that day as she was going through the line was a, a balloon filled with helium. And she was pretty excited about that. It wasn't this balloon. It was a balloon that I think said congratulations. It was a real cute balloon. And I, I was at home with the children that afternoon. Shannon and I have kind of been juggling work. Some of y'all can relate. There's like no work home balance or flow right now, right, in our lives. It's just a big blob we're trying to figure out. But I was home that afternoon, and I looked out the window to the back, and I could see our 11-year-old son running through the backyard like this. And I thought, uh-oh. And so I opened up the back door, and I went out on the patio, and Kalia's got tears rolling down her face. And I said, what happened? And she said, my balloon got away. And it was gone. And she was sad. Well, the church at Ephesus, their hearts had drifted away from Jesus. But they weren't sad about that. In Jesus, in chapter 2 of Revelation, verse 4, he says this, But I have this against you, Ephesus, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, do the works you did at first. And if not, I'll come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Do you feel the admonishment there? to Ephesus. This is different than what he said to Ephesus last week. He's applauding them. Hey, you're a hard-working church, and I applaud that. But today, he's admonishing them because they didn't love Jesus like they once loved Jesus. They worked hard, but their hearts had drifted away. And I told you last week, Ephesus reminds me of Grace Life in that way, that they worked hard and we work hard for God. But we can never get so impressed with the work that we're doing for God that we cease to be impressed with Jesus. Because when we get enamored with what we're doing and what we're about, and we lose sight of Him, then our hearts are going to drift away from Jesus. And we don't want that to happen. I think about Mary and Martha, scavenger hunt question number three, two sisters, Mary and Martha. In Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 38, the Bible says, as Jesus and the disciples continued on their way to Jerusalem, they came to a certain village where a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. Her sister Mary sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he taught. But Martha was distracted by the big dinner she was preparing. She came to Jesus and said, Lord, doesn't it seem unfair to you that my sister just sits here while I do all the work? Tell her to come and help me. But the Lord said to her, my dear Martha... You're only worried and upset over all these details. There's only one thing worth being concerned about. That's huge. That's a big statement. There's only one thing worth being concerned about. Mary has discovered it, and it will not be taken away from her. Martha comes in to Jesus there, and she says her peace. And then Jesus lays out for her the pathway to peace. He says, you're worried about all these things, but Martha, there's only one thing that matters. There's only one thing really you ought to be concerned with. There's only one thing you really ought to be focused on. There's really only one thing that ought to have a front row seat to your heart, and that's your relationship with Jesus. At Ephesus, their hearts had drifted away from Jesus. They were busy working for God, 
but they had forgotten the God of the work. Grace Life, let it never be said of us that we became all about the nuts and bolts of working for God, but we neglected to keep our hearts connected to Jesus. Jesus admonishes Ephesus because their hearts had drifted. Secondly, Jesus admonishes Pergamum because their minds had been deceived. We have a heart problem at Ephesus. We have a mind problem at Pergamum. Verse 14 of Revelation 2, Jesus says to Pergamum, I have a few things against you. You don't want to be there, right, when Jesus walks into your church and goes, Hey, everybody, I got some things against you. But that's what he's doing admonishing. He says, you, you have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. We don't have time to go into Balaam and Balak and all that, but this is a false teaching that was hurtful and harmful and leading people astray in the church. Not only that, there was another false teaching going on. Verse 15, so also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans, therefore repent. If not, I'll come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Ephesus had lost their love, but Pergamum had lost their minds. False teachers teaching a false gospel and unbiblical things came in, and the people were deceived by, by that. The Word of God was no longer the sole authority at the church at Pergamum. Once upon a time, it was the only item on the buffet at the church at Pergamum. But the people there apparently wanted to be more open-minded. They wanted to be more inclusive. And so they brought more teachings to the, to the buffet line there. They were so open-minded. In fact, it seems their brains had fallen out. And Paul had warned a young pastor named Timothy. Timothy, by the way, a generation earlier, was the pastor at Ephesus. And Paul is talking to Timothy, and he's offering him this warning in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2. He says to Timothy, preach the word. Be prepared whether the time is favorable or not. If people want to hear the word or they don't, doesn't matter. You preach the word. Patiently correct, rebuke, and encourage your people with good teaching. And he says to Timothy, a time is coming when people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching. They'll follow their own desires and look for teachers who will tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. They'll reject the truth and chase after myths. And Paul was absolutely right. One generation later, that's exactly what happened to the church at Pergamum. They allowed their minds to be deceived. All right, kids, you ever heard this song? The B-I-B-L-E, yes, that's the book for me. Come on! Okay, it really wasn't that good. But I didn't want to admonish, I just wanted to applaud. Hey, Grace Life, listen, can we just recommit ourselves today to God's Word? That even in a society, even in a day, in a culture where it is not popular, we are going to stand alone on the Word of God. That in this church family, there's only going to be one item that's set on the table before us, and that is the living, abiding, eternal Word of God. There's no place for anything else. Let's stand alone on the Word of God. The B-I-B-L-E. All right, so what are we saying? Jesus admonishes Ephesus. Why? Because their hearts had drifted. He admonishes Pergamum. Why? Because their minds had been deceived. Third, he admonishes Thyatira. Why? Because their bodies had been defiled. 
Their bodies had been defiled. Listen to what he says, Revelation 2.20. Jesus says, I have this against you, Thyatira, that you tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Apparently, there was this woman who had exalted herself in the church there to a place of leadership and to a place of influence. And she was leading people astray. Jesus calls her Jezebel. That's a reference back to the wicked queen out of the Old Testament who hated all of the true prophets of God, like Elijah, for example. Notice what Jesus says about her, verse 21. He says, I gave her time to repent. Listen to that grace. Jesus says, I gave her time to repent. But she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Jesus extended grace to this woman. She didn't receive it. She didn't want it. He goes on in verse 22 and says, Behold, I will throw her onto a sick bed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. There's grace again. And I will strike her children dead. Now, boys and girls, he's not talking about this lady's literal children. He's talking about people who followed her teachings. He's talking about people who adopted her lifestyle as their own lifestyle. They were following her Example: This woman had led this entire church into all kinds of immorality. You might say Ephesus lost its love, and Pergamum lost its mind, and Thyatira lost its morals. What are we saying? Jesus loves His church enough to admonish His church. And He says to Ephesus, your hearts have drifted. He says to Pergamum, your minds have been deceived. He says to Thyatira, your bodies have been defiled. Fourth, he says to Sardis, the congregation is spiritually dead. Spiritually dead. It's encouraging when I hear people who come to Grace Life for the first time. The the number one way that people describe their experience when they come here is, man, Grace Life is alive. And, and, And that's encouraging. But listen, Grace Life, is it really alive? Because we could have a reputation of being alive. And really not be. At the end of the day, it's really not anybody else's assessment of grace life that matters, is it? It's only the assessment of Jesus, the one who died and gave himself for us. This is what Jesus says to this dead church Sardis, Revelation chapter 3, verse 1. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive. But you are dead. Outwardly, it looked good. Something was wrong behind the scenes, behind the curtain, inside. John MacArthur says this. He says, what are the danger signs that a church is dying? A church is in danger when it is content to rest on its past laurels, when it's more concerned with liturgical forms than spiritual reality, when it focuses on current social ills rather than changing people's hearts through preaching the life-giving gospel of Jesus Christ, when it's more concerned with material than spiritual things, when it's more concerned about what men think than what God has said, when it's more concerned with creeds and systems of theology than with the Word of God, or when it loses its conviction that every word of the Bible is the Word of God Himself, no matter what its attendance, no matter how impressive its buildings, no matter what status it is in the community, such a church, having denied the only source of spiritual life, is dead. What's Jesus saying? 
saying to his church, I love you enough to tell you the truth. He's admonishing his church. He admonishes Ephesus because their hearts have drifted. He admonishes Pergamum because their minds have been deceived. He admonishes Thyatira because their bodies have been defiled. He admonishes Sardis because the congregation had become spiritually dead. And he admonishes Laodicea because they had become shamelessly indifferent. Indifferent toward Jesus and shameless in their indifference. They were well off. They were comfortable. They were affluent. They did not think they really needed Jesus. Jesus was not the blazing center of their life. Jesus was just simply another accessory to their life. He was just another add-on to their life. They thought they could kind of take him or leave him. Here's what Jesus says in Revelation 3.15 to Laodicea. I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you or vomit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. You know, some churches may grieve Jesus. Some churches may anger Jesus. And then there's some churches that just make him sick. Laodicea is one of those churches. Jesus says to them, either get hot or get cold. But whatever you do, don't stay lukewarm. At first, that doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. Doesn't it seem to be better that you wouldn't be cold toward Jesus? Maybe you'd be lukewarm. That's better than being cold, right? But no, that's not the case. You either need to be a good witness for Jesus or don't try to be a witness at all because what he doesn't want is for us to be bad witnesses. When we're half-hearted witnesses, we're a poor witness for him, for the gospel and for his glory, and we hinder his, we hinder his rescue mission in this world. We are keeping people from coming to know Jesus. Think of it like this. Let's just say, hypothetically, there's a pandemic. <laughs> a little too soon for that as a sermon illustration. No, it's current. We're, we're familiar with that and everything that would come along with that now, right? Most of us, maybe, probably, I guess all of us, this is the first time maybe we've seen anything like this. So imagine there's this pandemic and it hit the West Coast and it's coming east and it's coming fast and it's leaving millions and millions dead in its wake. Here in Birmingham, we're blessed. We've got a great health care system, great hospitals and brilliant people. And down at UAB, they discover and they develop a medicine for this disease. And they, they are able to put together volumes and volumes of this medicine. And they load boxcar after boxcar onto train after train so they can send it down here to the hub in McCullough, Alabama. From there, it's going to be distributed to other trains, to other airports. So as quickly as possible, lives, millions of lives can be saved and rescued because we have the cure now to this pandemic. So the first train in line. All right, boys and girls. Little blue train with a number one on that. Anybody know who that is? Thomas the tank engine chugging along. Ooh. Okay, I sang two songs today. The second one was free. So the first train is chugging along, boxcar after boxcar filled with the cure to this deadly disease. And on its way to McCullough, to the hub, there's an accident. The train derails. Not all the way off the tracks, but he's half on and half off. You know, really, the truth is it would have been better if that train had went all the way off the tracks. Really, it would have been better if it didn't go off the tracks at all. 
But if it's going to go off the tracks, go all the way off the tracks. So at least then it wouldn't be in the way. The other trains could continue to come through. People's lives could still be saved. This is what Jesus is saying to the church at Laodicea. I'm on a rescue mission. And because you're neither hot nor cold, you're in the way. You either get going in the right way or get out of the way. That's a strong word from Jesus to his church. It's a strong word to me in my life today and maybe to you in your life today. This is why Jesus would say, whatever you do, don't don't ride the middle. Don't, Don't go for lukewarm. Jesus had strong words of admonishment for these churches, but it it, it was because he knew they're capable of better. By his grace, they could bring him so much more glory. And he loves them enough, and he loves us enough to call us out. And to these churches, over and over again, Jesus is inviting them to remember. Remember who you are. Remember who he is. Remember what he has provided through his death on the cross. Repent. Return to him. Receive him and his grace. Listen to his words of grace to these churches. And as you listen to his words of grace to these churches, this includes me and you too. We need to hear these words of grace. Maybe you came in here today and your heart has been adrift from Jesus for some time. Maybe you've not been being renewed by the transformation of your mind through the word of God. Maybe you've been using your body for things that are not pleasing and honoring to the Lord. Maybe there's a deadness or an indifference about you. Well, you didn't step into this place this morning to hear condemnation from Jesus. You stepped into this place this morning to hear correction, loving correction, admonishment from Jesus because he knows because of his Holy Spirit in you, you're able to do more, much more for his glory and for your joy than you've been doing. Listen to his words of grace to Ephesus who lost their love. Revelation 2, 2, 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent. Your hearts drifted away. I love you. Repent. To Pergamum who lost their minds. Chapter 2, verse 16, therefore, repent. He's calling them back. To Thyatira, who lost their morals. I will do these things unless you repent. To Sardis, that was dead. 3, 3, he says, remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. Come back. To Laodicea, that was indifferent. He says, those whom I love. I love you, Laodicea. I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. And by the way, Laodicea, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Jesus is admonishing his church here not to condemn, but to correct. Don't lose sight that this is Jesus of Revelation 1 who's walking in the midst of his church. Walking in the midst of those golden lampstands. He's caring for his church. Ministering for his church. Applauding where it's applause worthy. Admonishing where they need to be admonished. So that each church and the church collectively might burn bright for God's glory. And then having applauded what is good. And having admonished what is bad. The third and last thing that Jesus does is he affirms what's to come. To his churches, he says, listen, you're not living right. But there's a better day coming. And with that in view, it ought to change the way you live today. Listen to what he says to these churches as he affirms they have a future. To Ephesus chapter 2, verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Ephesus, you've drifted, but you have a future. To Smyrna, 
He who has an ear, 2.11, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Smyrna, you have a future. To Pergamum, chapter 2, verse 17, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I'll give some of the hidden manna. I'll give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Pergamum, you have a future. Thyatira, the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end. To him, I will give authority over the nations. You have a future. To Sardis, the one who conquers will be clothed, thus in white garments. And I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. You have a future. To Philadelphia, chapter 3, verse 12. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. To Laodicea, the lukewarm church. He said, I want to vomit you out of my mouth. But listen to what he says about their future. Verse 21, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. He had just said, the way you're living makes me want to throw up, but I want you to sit with me on my throne. Affirming their future, he says, as also I conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. What's Jesus saying to his church? He's saying, in light of that day, change the way that you're living this day. Live today in light of what's coming, and what's coming is he's coming. Eternity is coming. Heaven is coming. So grace life, let's get ready for that day. Amen? Knowing that day is coming ought to change the way we live on this day. It ought to change the way that we live tomorrow because He is affirming our future. In fact, when we skip ahead in Revelation to Revelation chapter 19, we find that that is exactly what has happened. By the time we get to Revelation 19, the church has made herself ready. Listen to what he says. Revelation 19, 6 John says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. Watch. And His bride, that's us, the church, has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints grace life what we do today is dressing us for tomorrow the righteous deeds that we do today by his grace and for his glory is preparing me and you for this day that's waiting for us let's get ready for that day let's return this day to jesus with all of our hearts with all of our mind with all of our strength let's be alive and not be indifferent to him let's be blazing hot for his glory and for our joy he is worthy amen let's pray lord we bow before you jesus we love you and we thank you for bearing with us you admonish us just like these churches in the first century, we need it. We fall short. We miss the mark. But you're faithful and just to forgive, faithful and just to cleanse. You call us back again and again to yourself. And God, I pray that as we know that this day is soon coming, that we will be forever with you in your presence, that that would be on our mind in such a way that it would transform the way we live right now today. In those moments, God, I know that when we've drifted, when we've allowed our hearts and minds and lives and behavior and attitude to not be pleasing to you, it, it really boils down to one thing. I've simply come to a place where I say, Jesus, you're not enough for me. 
you're just not enough. And so I'm looking elsewhere. I'm turning somewhere else to find satisfaction. And every time I've done that, Jesus, the bucket that I drop in all those wells comes up full of dust. And you alone is life, and you alone is satisfaction. Jesus, you are enough. You're more than enough. You are everything to us. You are our all. Holy Spirit, would you stir our hearts and our minds and remind us of that today.